So to give us a little context from Luke 14 of last week, uh, handouts are available um, when you first walk in there. Um, so the parable of the great banquet. Jesus is at the house of a, a leader of the Pharisees and he's healed a guy on the Sabbath and he has this whole teaching unfolding um, really not just that he's bringing healing, but a person isn't saved, a person doesn't getting sick with edema because of their sin. And by the way, uh, just because you don't have edema doesn't mean that you're somehow holier than the other guy who is sick. So he's teaching on the role of works and, and a person's righteousness coming from Christ alone. Then he gets into these weird, seemingly weird parables on uh, the, the, like eating, like he's giving social etiquette on throwing parties. And as I mentioned, I mean, yeah, Jesus, he's giving, on the, on the face of it, he's giving good advice. Like verse, um, last week we talked about the parable of the wedding feast, verse seven and following. Someone invites you to a party, you sit at, don't sit at the, the main table, don't sit at the seat of honor because then someone will come and they'll ask you to move down. Like in the context of what Jesus' main purpose is on earth, where you sit at a table is kind of low on his priority list, Right? So, but he's giving good advice on just being, being humble and what that means. The big picture though for him is that he's the humble one. He's the one who comes in lowliness, makes himself the lowest that we would be exalted through him. So he's using these, he's using the context of eating dinner at a banquet, uh, like, like a banquet uh, to teach on the kingdom and humility, the role of humility. But most importantly, Jesus's goal is not that you would be humble. He didn't have to go to the cross to make you a, hum, a more humble person as if that's the end goal. So in everything that Jesus says, even if he straight up says, you be humble, which he does say many times, but everything is in service to ultimately his going to the cross. So in him telling us to be humble, he's teaching us like that's the ideal because he is the humble one. He's convicting us of our lack of humility and our pride and how our pride becomes our God and all of that. So when we hear the law, it's always twofold. It's, it's helpful in, in, in the, on the face of it to be humble, uh, to think of others as more highly than yourself. But then ultimately all that's in service to him being the, the one who thinks about others more than himself by giving himself on the cross. So then today with verse 12, I think I fit as many words as possible in this handout, so it's kind of intimidating, but um, so you, lest you, I hate for you to have to go over and get a Bible, carry it all the way back to your seat and open the Bible. So I just put the text here on, the, on your handout. Verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Talked about that a little bit last week. And again, on the face of it, this is thinking of others more highly than yourself, loving those who cannot love you back. Simply un, a love that's unreciprocated and, and unreciprocatable to actually love and serve those who cannot serve you back. That's that's good. That's what the Christian's called to do. And the law told us to do that before Jesus came. So Jesus is, of course, doubling down on that. But the big thing here is that he is the one who invites into his kingdom those who are unworthy to attend, those who are unexpected at the kingdom, 
those who are unholy and unrighteous and can't keep the law and have no business being at the party, that's who Jesus brings to his party. And we cannot repay him. So he's not calling us into the kingdom so that we might repay him, but because we can't. He does it all. Um, For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I think last week I finished with this um, keeping a resurrection perspective on how when we have our eyes, knowing that this this temporary life um, is so short and then we have this eternity in heaven. But when 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 you speak with people who are nearing the end of life or at the end of life, it kind of reorders all their priorities. I mean, grudges, Lord willing, go away because you don't don't care about the same, you're not as frustrated about the same things. And you start giving all your stuff away because you don't really need it, right? So you're more generous with your possessions. You're more loving of your neighbor. you're, you're, You're more haphazard with forgiveness because you're hoping the Lord will be just as haphazard toward you with forgiveness. You're forgiving everyone. So having that perspective, why wait until you're on your deathbed to start living that way? Back it up, keeping in mind the eternal, the eternal perspective. But here, uh, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That is, so only, the, only those who are just. The just is the same word for righteous. So only the righteous will be, will be resurrected. So, so now we're back into, is it, Am I made, am I, am I righteous because of my own works? So therefore, if I have a party and I invite, I need to be sure that I invite poor and crippled and lame and blind people to my party so that when the resurrection happens, I'll be on the, I'll be on the list of righteous people. Well, if I, if, if I say that, then I've, I've undone everything that Jesus is about. I've turned gift into law, see? So to be just here, to be just for the Lord when it comes to heaven is to be one who is made righteous, who is declared righteous. So we're not righteous on our own, but we are declared righteous. So when the last day comes and the resurrection happens, um, we who stand before Jesus are righteous, not because we lived a righteous life, but because his righteousness is credited to us. And now as we live our life day to day, as those who have been declared righteous in Christ, fruit follows from that to be sure. So we strive against our sinful flesh. We strive to love and serve our neighbor, to do the right thing, to to love others. But that's not why we're resurrected on the last day. If If it were dependent on us in some way, then why did Jesus bother dying, right? Then verse 15, after he said this whole thing about who you're inviting to, yes. Yeah, it certainly could, right? But the problem is Jesus doesn't just say that. He says it in a sandwich surrounded by teaching on the very opposite of works righteousness. It is those, it's the crippled, the lame, the blind who are brought into the kingdom and they can't do it. They don't deserve to be there. And he's teaching, remember the greater context still is who he's speaking to is the Pharisees who actually believe in works righteousness. So he's at a dinner party. I know it's been a week since we talked about this, but the context of him giving, the, re- the reason why he's even giving this parable at all is he's at a dinner party and you've got the Pharisees there who actually think that they're, going in, they're getting into the kingdom because of their righteousness. And Jesus is, is wanting to free them from that, from the tyranny of works righteousness. 
So he gives the parable. And in and and the second parable that's coming up, so he, the one before it, the, the wedding feast, friend move up higher, and this humility. So the, work, the Pharisees are certainly not humble. They're thinking that they're better than everyone else. They're taking the higher seat and think that they're deserving of the higher seat. So he's putting them down, and then he gives a great banquet of those who are invited because they cannot repay. They cannot be good. And then Jesus seems to undo it all here with the resurrection of the just. Wait a second. Well, yeah, because we're made just by him. It's the same. This, we run across the same problem in the Athanasian Creed. You remember that, that little ditty? What we say it once a year. <laughs> like the 45-minute creed. But like, it's, it's all about, the, it's, it's basically the Nicene Creed expanded. And the reason we're confessing these creeds is because the, the central teaching of the church is always Christ crucified for sinners alone who can't save themselves, period. And then there's all these teachings that flow out of that. But in this creed, you're saying these weird things like, and on the last day, um, those who have done evil will go to hell and those who have done good will go to eternal life. Well, well that seems to undo Jesus on the cross. So it's like we, we're hammering that we're not saved by works and then we just, we go and confess a creed that says, on the last day, those who have done good will go to eternal life. But we let that stand because it's true. You'll only get into heaven if you've kept the law. And if you have not kept the law perfectly, you're not, if you're not righteous, you're going to hell, period. That is the truth. Let me say that again. You're only going to heaven if you're perfect. Otherwise, you're going to hell. But, so when you're standing there on the last day for the judgment, who, you're standing there saying, well, I'm looking at myself according to the law and all I've got is sin. And Jesus says, no, no, I've taken that upon myself. That's the sermon for today. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, lifts off the burden and puts it on himself, removes and takes away. So the, the Old Testament picture of like the scapegoat, um, who the, all the sin of the, of the community was put, of Israel was put on the goat and the goat is sent out into the wilderness to die. Sin removed from us. So that's John the Baptist, Jesus taking away our sin and then giving us his righteousness and holiness. So as we stand on the last day for the judgment, we, we do, we stand as those who have been credited with all the good works of Jesus. In Christ, you are a new creation. So we, we, are, we stand as those covered in Christ, wrapped in Jesus, who stand before the judgment on the works of Jesus alone. If you'd rather have your works... Jesus will let you have them. And they're heavy and they pull downward. Right? So you don't want them. Let go of that cinder block. Right? Question, Ina. Um, I kind of forgot it. It was about the sermon because you did say, which of course is true, that Jesus has in fact taken all our sins away. So as we believe this every day, we do live the life of love that he now enables us to live and of course it's imperfect, but it's not us doing it because we know we've died and been drowned in baptism to our sin. So we reckon ourselves dead to sin and don't worry about them. But also when we see them, we don't do them anymore and ask his Holy Spirit to help us. So we do live the new life even now. 
and don't have to think about worrying about our sin, which does trouble us continually. Right. Well, the, 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 uh, the ongoing burden of the Christian is to, be, to still be in the sinful flesh so that we know that our sin is bad and that it hurts people and that it hurts us. Right. Hopefully, yes. Well, but right. But I'm saying I'm saying that it's the, the motivation for the Christian. If Jesus is going to take all my sins away, why don't I just stimulate the economy? Just keep it going. Sin all the more that grace may abound. Right. Well, the idea is, as a Christian, as those who have been set free from sin, we actually recognize that sin is bad and it hurts myself. It hurts others. And so now it actually brings, it comes into the conscience with this, stop hurting people. Stop hurting yourself. It's like if I think I'm adding to this burden on the cross, of course it's all done, but then I don't want to do that anymore. That would be stupid. There you go. That's it. So our, the, li- the good life that we live as a Christian, the, the good works that we hope to bear in our Christian life does not add anything to Jesus, but it flows out of, it flows out of Jesus now. As those, as those who have been set free from the necessity of doing good works. We're actually free to do good works. And that's um, maybe a good example. Like, if you, if you knew, i try to quickly think of an example here. If you're, if you're driving to church, and uh, you're on the way to church, and you're thinking in your, in your messed up theological system that you have, to do, you have to do X amount of good works, maybe just one, we'll set the bar very low. One good work per week, to keep your slate clean. So, but this whole week has gone by and you've been a naughty, naughty boy and you're, and you're, drawing to church, you're driving to church and there, God has given you this wonderful gift. Someone had a flat tire and they're on the side of the road. It's, a, it's like a, it's a 93-year-old widow who probably shouldn't be driving anyway. It's 20 below and she's out trying to change a tire. You're like, call AAA, what are you doing? But you, you pull over and there you go. It was this great opportunity for you to now do your good work. The problem is, are you actually helping her because she needed help? So remember, you looked at her with this relief because she is the work that you can do now. It's not about her. Yeah, she's the means to the end. But now what Jesus does is he takes away that need for that one work. You don't need to do it. So it's, it's free. So now as those who have, I have to do nothing to make God happy. My sin is all taken away. I'm declared righteous in him. I'm driving to church and there's a lady who needs my help. So why not go help her? Now it's actually driven by love freely. So it's the lack of freedom that kills it. I know I've used an example before and just like a marriage example or something like if if your wife demands of you that you bring her flowers every Friday when you come home from work, it ceases to be a gift. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I can tell you right now, it's not Well, every marriage is different. <laughs> it's just a five love, love languages or something like this. But the idea would be, it's not, if it's demanded of you, it is not coming from a sincere love. Or, and even if it is, even if like, you know, my wife loves for me to bring these home every Friday when I come home from work, but like it takes away from you the element of giving freely without, without expectation. So having the law been fulfilled by Christ, it then sets us free to love our neighbor, not because we have to satisfy the law, 
but because it's already been fulfilled, now I can love freely. Yeah? What I love is in Ephesians, at the very beginning. Um, We're in Luke 14. What are you doing? <laughs> Paul speaks of our identity in Christ. We've been raised with Christ, we're seated with Christ. And then we are in Christ. And after that, he goes into walk in a man- manner worthy of your calling. So to me, it's, what motivates me is to know by grace I've been saved through faith where my identity in Christ, I want to walk in a manner worthy of my calling. You know, instead of the do's and don'ts, you know, do good, get good, do bad, get bad. You know, not like that. Right. But we're, we're always in that, we're always getting sucked back into that because our sinful flesh loves the law. And we, we love to look for a list. And really, we, we end up taking that up. We use that against other people. We judge other people. Um, but yeah, this new identity of the Christian, well, Jesus is gonna to talk to about it, hopefully I get, get there, when he talks about the cost of discipleship. Now I'm a disciple as I've been brought into the kingdom purely out of grace, out of gift, and then he sets me free to live. But as I'm living, he has told me that all these other things that I used to build my life around, that I used to fear, love, and trust in most, they're no longer my God, they're idols. And so now as I live the life of a disciple, I'm looking at the way I live my life, the, the way I spent my time or the things I did and my whatever. That's no longer what I'm called to be doing as a Christian. I'm turned from that. And that's not easy because our sinful flesh wants that. The, 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 uh, the fruit in the garden was appealing to the eye. And the devil's like, it's actually, God ultimately wants you to do this. If he was here, I mean, he's not here right now, but if he were here, he'd tell you that he wants you to eat this fruit. Really, you you misunderstood him the first time. So we convince ourselves into this sin, right? So, but the disciple is saying, no, this this is not good for me. It's not good for, it's not good for myself. It's not good for my family. And so we're fighting against that idol. And that's this cost of chopping. So we'll we'll, we'll get there in a second here. Um, So then, so one, verse 15 when one of those who reclined at table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's kind of like out of this bizarre, you know, different commentators take it different ways. Uh, my favorite was this. He, he's listening to Jesus say, when you throw a party, invite all the people who no one in the right mind is going to invite. And that guy kind of rolls his eyes at Jesus. Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about, but I know this. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so, which, which means, by the way, that includes me, a Pharisee sitting at the table. I'm going to be eating. I'll be at the kingdom. I don't know about these crippled people you're talking about, but I'll be there at the kingdom. And so then he, so whenever somebody comes to Jesus with anything other than humility, he turns his sights on them, right? So then he turns the parable, but he said to him, verse 16, to the guy who thinks he'll be there at the, at the kingdom. Oh, by, and by the way, the festival, the, the feast, eating bread in the kingdom of God, um, where is the kingdom of God? Wherever the king is. So when you're, sitting at, when you're sitting at table with Jesus and you're eating with him, what are you doing but eating bread in the kingdom of God? 
And really, this kingdom is brought down to us whenever we receive his supper, right? And as we pray before meals, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. He's bringing the kingdom to us. Let thy kingdom come. Anyway, verse 16, he says to him, a man once gave gift, keep that in mind, is giving the kingdom. He gave a great banquet and he invited, which is the Greek word kaleo, called, he called many. And when the time for the banquet rolled around, he sent his servant to say to those who were invited, come for everything is now ready. I guess the invitation was different than our wedding invitations. It says like, you know, 4 p.m. It's like, this is more like a save the date went out <laughs> without the details. And then when, when the, whenever the, uh, you know, the lamb was coming off the spigot or whatever, is that those spigots for water? Spigot. Spit. Spit. Come for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Which, I mean, so the commentators would say, possibly there's like this big sale. He needed to go complete the sale. Um, it happened to be that day was the day when um, he needed to go do this thing. So maybe it was a, like, it was a likely excuse. I already had, the, I already had this thing, I, had the, I already had this things planned and I need to go finish this sale. My whole livelihood's wrapped up into this land. It's very important. But who, can, who can fault the guy for saying, if I don't go complete this sale now, then I'm gonna lose out on this deal or maybe my livelihood will be impacted or something. It's possibly justifiable. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. So, I mean, I don't, I don't have an ox, oxen. I know we're not supposed to covet them. I don't really have that problem. You, bet, you ever coveted somebody's ox lately? I know the Aurelios are really struggling with this one, the ox coveting. <laughs> no, but in our context, so that your, your whole livelihood is tied up into your ox. So you can't farm, you can't pull stuff, you can't drag, I mean, it's very important. It's like, it's like the, the, all your John Deere tractors going out. So this is a big deal. He bought five of them. He needed to go examine them to finish the deal. So again, tied up into his life and it's easily justifiable perhaps. Please have me excused. Verse 20, another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So using the, using the family as an excuse, I've, I have a, I have a, I've got a honeymoon to go to or a honey-do list uh, <laughs> of things at home. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry. So it wasn't, he was like, no, it's okay. They all have good excuses. That makes sense. No, he's angry at the excuses that remove those from his feast. So think about why they're, why they're rejecting the feast. Because they hold the feast of the Lord, the master, to be less important than these other things. So all the other things that pull us away from the feast, um, those, are, those become the excuses of, of these people invited, to the, invited to the, into the feast. Master becomes angry and says, fine, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city. Now, this is key. Because in a second, he's going to talk about those outside the city. So first he says, go invite those of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. So those who were invited the first time were those who were like, you'd expect to see. 
the high nobility, the friends and the, the, close, the close friends and relatives of this wealthy uh, landowner and farm, whatever he is. Um, but then all those who should have been there and those who are like expected and are qualified to go say no. And so then he invites people of the city. Now think, what's the, what is this analogous to? Who are those who are initially invited and, and say no? Like, they get all these excuses? The Pharisees, in the direct context, we'd say the people of Israel, those who are denying the, the, the Messiah, those who, those who are rejoicing in the, in the law as the end unto itself. So then he says, go into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the land. Who's that? Who are the blind? By the way, who was just in the house five seconds ago in the context? The guy with, the guy with dropsy, right? So they crippled those who are infected by some, the fallenness of the world, those who are rejected, they're of, this, they're of Israel, and yet they are cast out. If you're watching The Chosen, Matthew, the tax collector. Tax collectors, right? Sinners. What do you call a lady of the city? A sinner. Right? So you're calling the... So, so this is the... This is the expansion of the, the, the kingdom. And Jesus is making this point very clear. He has come not just for these. In fact, those who he initially invited are rejecting it. And now he's inviting all these who are unworthy. It's not about their worthiness. He is giving it to them as a gift. So he calls those who have been rejected. And he's doing it there in the very dinner. But notice it says, go out quickly in the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. What's it say in, in verse 16, he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited. So it started, the first round was an invitation. And now that he's expanding it to more people, he brings it a little bit more forcefully. Don't just get, don't, don't drop an invitation in the mailbox, but bring your truck and throw them in the back. Bring them. It's, it's important because, especially in the context, according to the commentaries, these this and the next um, invitation that are somewhat spontaneous to those who are undeserving, the proper thing is to reject it, to say no. No, thank you. Thank you, but no thanks. That's like the proper social etiquette. And so they're going to have to be, you really, you're going to have to bring them. Verse 22, servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there's room. He's a generous master and he wants his house full. And the master said to the servant, go out. So now he had gone in and now go out to the highways and hedges. And so who, who's, who's on the outside? The Gentiles, which is our, this is our epiphany theme, right? So the, 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 the wise men, the magi come, uh, and Jesus is a light unto the nations. So, and Luke is making this point. Luke is writing to Gentiles. So Jesus is the savior, not just of the household of Israel, but of all the nations. Go out into all those who have fallen off of the world, those who are outcast, those who are outside of Israel, and compel. So he takes up another notch. So before, so invite and then, and then bring in and now like drag them. Get out the cattle prod and force them in. <laughs> it's this wonderful picture of, this is, how, this is how much the Lord wants his house it's how angry he was at those who had rejected him. And it's just how abundantly generous. He's like, 
Have you ever tried to like, give somebody generosity and they say no? And, but it's obvious that they need it and they just keep, and they just keep saying no? You know, you ever, and you have to like take the, whatever money you're trying to give them and like sneak it into their pocket. And then they find it and they mail it back to you. It's very annoying. That's what he's doing here. You have to like give it because they're not going to want you. They don't even know what they're, they don't, they don't know what you're giving them. Bring them into the party. He is the one who fills, he is the one who fills the kingdom. He brings them in. He sends out the messengers to do it, but he brings them, he has them brought in. Very important picture there of how, how it works in our Lord's kingdom. Uh, he does the inviting, he does the calling, he does the compelling. None of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Who's he saying that to? Those who are self-righteous, according to, they deserve to be there. Those who were rightly invited initially. None of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Why is Jesus telling them this if it doesn't even matter? Is he just kind of like, like kicking his dust off his feet on the way out, right? I'm never shopping here again as you leave, right? Well, maybe that's a good answer. Yeah, to change their design. I mean, really, too, I don't know. I've never done this, but you, I've seen it. It's really fun. Have you ever been at a store and someone who's like the guy in front of you gets really mad at the person working and they throw a big fit and they storm out? <laughs> And then you get to walk up next. And as the guy's leaving, he said, I'm never coming in here again, slams the door. He's probably coming back, especially if he likes the product, right? He'll throw a big fit. Why is he throwing a big fit? He wants something for free or he wants you to change your behavior. You shouldn't treat people this way. You shouldn't do this to me. Uh, so in, in, now that's, that's kind of a negative portrayal of this, but as Jesus, in, in saying these such stern words to the Pharisees, the fact that he's even saying it to them at all, he's not saying, I, don't, I, would, I would argue, it's not that he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm never coming back here again. He's saying, he's actually giving the gift of repentance to them. He's bringing them the law. If you want to get into the kingdom according to your own righteousness, you're not getting in. So he's, He's really, he's, he's making them undeserving. He's making them rejected. And then, who gets invited? It's the rejected ones. So Jesus is doing this in the conversation, and this is nothing other than a picture of what God does to us every week through his law and gospel, right? He condemns us as those who are unworthy, and then he calls us into his kingdom. Now, the cost, this, any comments or questions there before we get into the next? Yes. Right, he's, he's filling out, he's describing more specifically who those are who eat at the, at the feast of the kingdom. It is those 
not those who you'd expect who have seemingly merited it on their own, but as those who have not, as those who are, who are unable to repay, those who are un, unqualified on their own. Um, so I mean, there, there's certainly applications to be made of this, of like the, the excuses that are made. I mean, so he says, um, there is room, or where's this line? Like the feast is ready. Uh, the, 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 this is like what we say about the, this is the ongoing Lord's Supper offering that the church has on earth. That God is making himself present here to, for, to sit at table with us, to give us his body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Where we are gathered together, though we cannot see it with our eyes of flesh, we are gathered together with the angels, the archangels, and all the company of heaven, which includes your dead loved one who died in the faith. And we're, we're there gathered together of all saints, with, with all the saints of all times and places, the, the, the eternal church. And it's just this mysterious thing that, we're, that we can't even see that he calls us to be a part of. And um, so a tremendous gift. And then we say, so, 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 God, so God is coming down into this world touching our unholiness with his holiness, um, forgiving our sins, bringing heaven into earth, ripping, ripping earth wide open so that heaven could come in and forgive our sins. And we say, that's nice, but I've got soccer practice. I, just, I like to pick on soccer because it's a communist sport, but there's other examples you could, you could put in there. So the, the so I'm, and I'm not, you want to make this case so it doesn't have to be on Sunday. This is going back to the teaching on the Sabbath. We happen to do it on Sunday because most people happen to be off of work. So it's a convenient time. It happens to be also the day Jesus rose from the dead. And so the church has always historically worshiped on Sunday, but it doesn't have to be on Sunday. We can, if, if everybody here was working on Sundays, we'd say, okay, let's find a different time that works better for most folks. The idea is to get everybody together though as one, as one body of Christ. So we get to know each other and so forth. So when a, when a person has like true obligations where the church is going to bend over backwards to try to bring the feast to them or, or alter the time of the feast so they can be a part of the feast, right? That's a different thing than someone who is intentionally removing themselves from the feast because they don't think they need it. If I don't need it, it's because I'm righteous on my own. Oh, I'm righteous by myself. What do you call that? Self-righteous versus those who need to be made righteous by another. So for, for me to, to, remove, to, uh, to remove myself from the gifts that make me righteous because I think I don't need them, I'm jumping into, I'm jumping into the shoes of the Pharisees. And yet we all do it. That's why we need the third commandment to convict us of our, of our easy wandering, our easy straying, and so the Lord's calling us back. So stop making your excuses that draw you away from the kingdom. Because he's, and here's this great banquet, Lord, giving Lord, who's calling us in, making us holy, filling us up with his gifts. And he wants his house, he wants his house full. Yes. Um, no, no, I mean, the, uh, the, the, the sermon that he sends out, I think this is the ongoing conversation of the church through which the Holy Spirit certainly works. Um, 
So the, this servant that the master is sending out to invite people into the kingdom is the church. And, and the, how does the church invite people into the kingdom other than by the gospel? And the Holy Spirit works through the gospel. So ultimately, yes, it is the Holy Spirit, but it's working through, it's working through you, right? It's, it's the, I mean, the church isn't, isn't like, well, you had to invite people to come to, to Bethany at, at 8.30 on Sunday. And so like, don't limit it. Don't, the church is the conversation of which you're a part. So it speaks the gospel to others. Yes, what? It would be better to interpret uh, the Holy Spirit working through the servant as an example, just another example as he works through us. Yeah, so the, so, uh, well, here, so the master is inviting, and he has to invite through means. So he sends out the servants. And that's where the Holy Spirit is, doing the compelling. And in a way, what's nice is it does set us, it does set us at ease that we're casting the, we're throwing out the invitation and giving the, giving the invite, trying to compel, but ultimately, you know, some come, some don't. Some don't think they need it, which again is the converse, that's why Jesus is having this conversation. If you don't think you need it, then you're not going to, this is very, very bad for you. You think you're getting in on your own? So where, those who are smug in their self-righteousness and sin, he brings the hammer of the law. You will not get into the kingdom. You'll be cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who are, who are who admit, admitting of their repentance, rep, they confess their sin, recognize their their inability to save themselves and their unworthiness, those are the very ones that are given the gospel. The kingdom is handed over to them freely. And we're always getting, our sinful flesh is always pulling us back into that smugness. And so he brings the law and shatters us with his law and brings us back. These, these conversations are always happening in our own conscience too. So we, in our daily struggle against sin, the words that we say, things that we do, things we shouldn't do and so forth, that's the Lord bringing his law into your conscience to turn your, to turn your heart back to Jesus. Let's say the cost of discipleship, um, I have four minutes and I didn't even finish one side of the handout. I wanna get, to, chapter 15 is all the lost stuff. The lost, key, lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son. Next Sunday is like awesome Hopefully next Sunday. If they get. So cost of discipleship real quick and then a little, oh no, it's got mother and father. It's a long conversation. I only have four minutes. Um, let's, let's at least read a little bit of it. We can answer maybe one, one piece. Now the crowds accompanied Jesus and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Inevitably, this is always the gospel that falls at the beginning of the school year. We have like all the school families are here. Welcome to Bethany. And, and then the gospel of the Lord. You have to hate your father and mother, wife and children. I thought these guys were pro-family. What is wrong with these? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? And he gives two metaphors of the importance of thinking about what you're getting yourself into. And then he comes back to verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I'll unfold that more next week. But in short, Jesus is giving this, 
the, the entanglements that the disciple finds themselves in, think about the parable of the sower. There's a lot of analogies here to the parable of the sower. Some of the seed falls among the thorns and the thorns choke out the growth of the plant. So as the, as the disciples, there are some things that are going to attempt to distract or, or choke out the life of faith of the disciple. One is family. So we, there is a right, certainly a right place for family. Uh, two is suffering, uh, bearing our cross in whatever way that manifests itself in our individual lives. And the third is our stuff, all of our possessions. Renounce all that you have. And we're going to unfold those in, in, uh, in a helpful way next week, but just a word about family, and then we'll return to that next week. So, what, so the Lord is the one who gave us the relationships, right? So he gives us father and mother's creation. He creates Adam and Eve, right? He creates family. And it's good. Husband and wife, bringing forth children. This is all God-pleasing and very good. And uh, then he even he upholds family with the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. The Old Testament's full of love your neighbor, Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So we have these clear, these clear uh, ordering of our Lord. He's giving us all these relationships as good things. And he tells us to love one another. And then we get Jesus who just kind of shatters it. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father, what? You what? Well, quickly, kind of skip to the end. First of all, the word hate here is not the way that we often use hate like um, I, I hate soccer and cats and, you know, some vegetables. The end of the asparagus, like if you don't break off the asparagus in just the right place, it's kind of extra chewy at the end. I hate that. Despise it. Well, that's not, so the difference here in the scripture is when, the, like we think Old Testament, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, and then also Jacob, he loved Rachel and hated Leah. So we get this word hate popping up. What Jacob, I love Esau, I hated. What did Esau do? These are decisions he's making before they're even born. Hate? All, all hate in this sense means is to have preference for another. So it's not, it's not this, this, active, this active animosity that we often refer to when we say hate, but rather um, I... I, I, I when you're, when you're, when you're RSVPing to a wedding and they're like, steak or chicken? Uh, steak I love, chicken I hate. I don't hate chicken. I mean, when they're out of steak, I'll eat your chicken. But that's the idea is I'm giving preference to, to beef. And so to hear for the Lord Jesus is the one who ultimately hates his own life so that he would love us. He sets his own Self aside. Now, when it comes to reordering and disentangling our lives, we'll unfold next week, he's the one who gives us all these relationships, father, mother, wife, children, and so forth. But if we don't have the right, the right ordering as a gift from our Lord, we're really missing out on the gift. For example, if you only see your parents as those from whom, uh, or those that you can use towards some, some self-serving end, or if you only love your children because they make you, they, 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 you're hoping that they serve you in some way, or you're, it's something, when, you're, when you love someone only because what you can get out of them, rather than 
that God has given you them as a gift. That's the difference. In our sin, we approach people for what we can get out of them. And we value them according to what we can get out of them. And Jesus is shattering that and giving them back to us as a gift, as a good gift, as to love. So if you're seeing these loved ones in the wrong way, then you need to hate them. You need to be dead to them and they're dead to you because you're loving them wrongly. So God gives us this right ordering of things, first as him being our God, and then, and not all of these other things, and certainly not yourself, he is our God. And then he gives us all these other gifts back as a gift. There's a couple of paragraphs there on the back of your handout where I unfold that more and we'll, and we'll uh, pick up there next week. Any final questions when we wrap up? Sorry, next week we'll I'll try to start the engines faster and we'll get to Luke 15. The Lord be with you.